0: maybe the first time that I'm not just immediately going to uh, just tell you to turn someplace in scripture. We've been preaching through the gospel of Mark, or rather we were preaching through the gospel of Mark. We've made the transition to preaching through the creation days, but every once in a while it's a good thing to just pause and reflect on the great truths of scripture. Truths which have to be pulled not just from one source, but usually have to be to look at the whole scope of what God's Word says about a given topic to truly understand it. What we're dealing with this morning is really what makes Christianity distinct, unique. How do we know who God is and what He's done for us? How do we know these things to be true? And I think a particular day to do that and to focus really on the fundamental tenet of our faith that the basis of all Christian knowledge comes from and stems and originates from God's own word, today would be a good day to have that topic addressed. Because we are about 502, well, 507 years removed from really a great day in Christian or really church history. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we are about to have Halloween in a couple days. And while the world is dressing up and celebrating in that way, we have to make sure that we don't forget what happened in our church history, our family history over 500 years ago. Over 500 years ago, uh, Halloween didn't really have that name, it had All Hallows Eve and was eventually shortened and has kind of lost that meaning. All Hallows' Eve was a day in which you prepared for the celebration on November 1st, All Saints' Day, in which you would celebrate all the saints that you couldn't get to throughout the year as you prayed to your own individual saints. Martin Luther had a patron saint, the saint of minors, that he reached out to early in his life. But there came a point in time in which Martin Luther, in the 1517, started seeing things in the church that not only did he not agree with, but he thought were indefensible. Like people purchasing their salvation by the purchase of indulgences, a practice that's still going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And when he was tried, he took Halloween, he took October 34, 31st of 1517 to nail 95 arguments, 95 theses against indulgences, points of arguments that he would be willing to debate people with. And that's kind of the historic mark or the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. And when he finally had to give a testimony, uh, give a defense for what he was doing when he posted those, the- those theses... and challenged really the authority of the church. He said a quote which... I hope to often repeat... at Evergreen Community Church. I've already repeated it like... I think like two or three times. But at the Diet of Worms... in 1521... defending his actions... he said... unless I am convinced... by the testimony... of the scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Right there is encapsulating a fundamental truth and maybe assumption that we all share in this room and don't ever really think about it. The fact that The authority for what we believe and why we believe it comes from one source ultimately for the Christian. It comes from God's holy word. It comes from the Bible. This is a fundamental assumption which we all proceed off of. It's a fundamental assumption of why we sing God's truth to him. Why we pray his word back to him. Why we confess our sins the way we do. Why we, right now, will hopefully be listening to God's word. It's a fundamental truth that bears reminding ourselves. I looked up a famous quote that I've quoted often as well. Have you ever heard the quote, Gentlemen, this is a football That quote came from Vince Lombardi, and he said it in July of 1961 when he kicked off the first day of training camp for 38 uh, players on his Green Bay Packers football team. Prior to that season in which he became their head coach, they had lost to the Philadelphia Eagles after blowing a lead in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game. And that's what they came to. Those 38 players come to be trained by their new head coach. And what words do you think that they would give? Well, Vince would give to this group of guys who were professional athletes... ...who had spent their life playing football. Don't ask me any more details. I'm reading the information that I have from what I've seen beforehand. What he told professionals is he started on the first day of training by saying, this is a football. How ridiculous. They knew what a football was. What was his point? What was he doing? Well, he didn't stop there. He then had everyone open up their playbooks and started on page one where he, they began to learn the fundamentals, blocking, tackling, throwing, catching, etc., ...and he's teaching this to people who are at the top of their game. See, what he was doing there... ...was he was being hyper-focused on the fundamentals of the game. He didn't start off with proceeding and just assuming that they knew those fundamentals... ...and proceeding to the advanced techniques that they would eventually get to. Every year, Vince Lombardi would start off every season... ...and hold up a football and start with the basics and say, gentlemen... This is a football. His hyper focus led him to that very first season to a 37 to 0 win against the New York Giants, and he proceeded to win over the next seven years five NFL championships and never had a losing season and never lost a playoff game again. That's what happens, principally, when we don't ignore the fundamentals, when we focus on the things that are core. The problem, though, is with the fundamentals, just like if you told a group of professional athletes that this is a football, we kind of deride and mock doing that. If you're a musician, you don't like practicing the scales If you're in math, you don't like going back to previous principles that you've already learned. You think, I've gotten everything down pat. I just want to move on. The problem with that is, we human beings are pretty forgetful. And if we don't practice the fundamentals, we're going to make some pretty glaring mistakes. And that's especially true when it comes to our faith. And I plan over the next five years really to address five fundamentals of Reformation Day. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Sola Fide, Sola one other one. (laughs) I got them out of order, so once I did that. And I'm going to start with the first one, Scripture alone. And ultimately, the reason why the Bible, Scripture, is fundamental to our faith is because of what it is, and what it claims to be. It claims to be God's word, and it bears the author's authority, and it bears the author's perfections. That's basically the gist of it. That's why we go to the Bible. So let's not make any assumptions here. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to be flipping over to three really basic texts here. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to start off in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. You know, this is the same pattern that we just saw in Psalm 19, isn't it? That there's a connection between God's word, as spoken by the prophets, and God's word, which founded the creation. If you notice when Steve was reading through that, it starts off with the heavens declaring the glory of God. God spoke these things into existence. They, order, they operate according to his laws. And then it makes a transition in the second half seamlessly to start talking about God's word, the law, how it's perfect, how it guides us, how it corrects us, how it's a lamp as in a dark place. The psalmist in Psalm 119 can speak to the perfections of God. But don't don't just skip over about why the scriptures are perfect. Why they're the foundation of our faith. Well, we have it in verse 1. That long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Our Bible is 66 books. Some of those books are really letters. The Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, some of it Aramaic. The New Testament is written uh, in Greek. But all of it is said to be God's word. Psalm 33 ...says that the heavens were made by the word of the Lord... ...all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters into the sea... ...and puts its depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to being. He commanded and it came into existence. And then about this same word... ...we see prophets like Jeremiah. Jeremiah... ...chapter 23, or rather, Jeremiah chapter 1. We see that the book starts off with verse 1. The verse 5, these are the first five verses of Jeremiah. That these are the words of Jeremiah, the prophet. Verse 2 describes him as... "...to whom the word of the Lord came to in the days of Josiah." And he says in verse 4 and 5, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see, the word of the Lord that we have here is God speaking by prophets. And those prophets had their writings written down for future generations. And even when we think about the New Testament, Jesus did not write a single book of the New Testament. But it's still God's Word because of the same thing, the same principles that were true in the Old Testament. But when it comes to speaking God's Word... There's a lot of false prophets out there, aren't there? There's a lot of people who claim to speak for God. And that's why I think that's really helpful that we have in Scripture. We see different tests of a prophet who claims to speak God's word. And these three I have in your outline so that I don't miss a blank and you can have it. And there, I'm going to be using some technical terms here that I hope to explain And in case you missed the definition, it's in the outline. And the three tests of a true prophet is first that they receive God's call and God's commission. We just heard that from Jeremiah, that God called him, God gave him his word, God appointed him as a prophet. And when Jeremiah critiques, or rather God critiques, the false prophets... ...as he does in Jeremiah 23, verse 16. He says this, quote, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you... ...filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own mind... ...not from the mouth of the Lord. He says of them in verse 21 of that same chapter, Jeremiah 23, I did not send these prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. That same commission that happens through all the Old Testament books is not with prophets in the New New Testament, but with apostles. Apostles. That's why in all the Gospels we're told about how Jesus appointed and personally chose his apostles... ...who would be his representatives to preach his message. It's at this point, it's from an observer. How do we know though that a prophet was actually appointed by God himself to speak God's words... Well, it's really key. If you looked at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 19, you would see that when Jesus appointed his prophets or his apostles, he gave them his authority. He gave them his authority. Performance of miracles. Giving, in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues. Performing healings. Casting out demons. Having... ...miraculous capabilities. It's a ministry that was authenticated by miracles. If you just flip over from Hebrews chapter 1... ...to Hebrews chapter 2... ...we see this same paradigm... ...being presented to us by the author of Hebrews... ...for why we should believe. In the second half of... uh, ...this is... Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 3. Talking about this salvation had its beginning when it was spoken, by, uh, spoken of by the Lord. And it was confirmed by those who heard them. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to His will. People are appointed prophets not by the will of man, not by our ingenuity. But they spoke God's word by God's commission, receiving authentication, confirmation that God is truly speaking to them by the presence of miracles. In that last step, kind of goes with miracles, doesn't it? That third test of a true prophet is one whose all their predictions come true. All their predictions come true. And here, a really a good verse to write down for this... ...would be Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. When we're told that the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I've commanded him not to speak... or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? That's a good question from someone who calls themselves a prophet. Verse 22 tells us the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled... ...that message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. You know, we as the church can really miss a lot of errors... ...a lot of basic fundamental problems if we just listen to this. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 said that long ago... That in many different times, in many different ways, and those ways could be visions, dreams, dictation. Lots of different ways in which God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? In the Old Testament. But, verse 2 says, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Should we expect new messengers coming with a new message to fill out the message that we have in these 66 books of the scriptures? No. Because we've already entered into the last days, receiving the final message that was confirmed by miracles. This view that I'm telling is telling you it's called cessationism it's saying that the miraculous sign gifts which god testified to a specific messenger for a new message has ceased in principle because there's no new there's no more new messages do you know what god's word for your salvation is you have it complete in these 66 books of scripture That piece of information would have really helped Joseph Smith when he thought he had an angel appear to him and give him a new message. The same thing happened in the 600s with Islam when Muhammad thought he had the appearance of an angel. And whether they were lying or actually had some astounding experience of hearing from an angelic being, I don't know. But Galatians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 is pretty crystal clear. He says that there are some of you who trouble, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But, verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We all have this tendency, and the reason why we need to remind ourselves of the fundamentals that only the Bible is God's word, and that it's complete, and that it's sufficient, is because we all have the tendency to elevate our experiences above God's written word. To elevate our experience of maybe even things we can't explain above God's word To elevate our experiences of charismatic personalities who claim to receive prophecies, but sometimes they get some wrong. But other than that, they're pretty good guys. How many prophecies does it take to get, how many prophecies can you get wrong before, by Moses' prescription, you should be killed? One. That's all it takes. ...because Scripture, the written word... ...is not just the written word of Moses... ...the written word of Jeremiah... ...the written word of Isaiah... ...it is the written word of God. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We see that this word... ...the Bible is not only the word of God... ...but really all three points are kind of like one sentence. The Bible is the word of God... ...bearing the author's authority. Look at verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths... ...when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... ...but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... ...and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Think about what the apostles there are talking about. They have been commissioned. And when we talk about the Bible being God's word... It's still, do not mistake this, it's still rooted in history. It's still rooted in time and space. The apostles, when they wrote, they wrote of experiences they were eyewitnesses to. Things that they heard. And Peter here is telling them, we had the most amazing of experiences. That the gospel that we're preaching to you, we saw and we heard it ourselves. And he talks there, where did he, where did Peter ...see Jesus' glory on a mountain... ...hearing God himself say... ...this is my beloved son... ...on the Mount of Transfiguration. Go back to Mark chapter 9 if you want to review that. And you would think that that experience... ...would be the highlight of your life. That would be the thing that you put your stake on... ...about why you believe Christianity... ...because I saw it with my own eyes... And I heard it with my own ears, the reality. But notice what Peter says next. Verse 19, and we have something more sure the prophetic word. Here, this is talking about the Old Testament. ...to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp in a shining and dark place... ...until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man... ...but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit... We have here that God's word is written. The reason why we call the Bible God's word is because God is the author of it. Now, how does it precisely work out that Jeremiah received the words and he spoke God's words? What's the mode of it? I don't know. (laughs) That's not what's given us here. What Peter tells us is that no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, Moses was not just making things up. He received God's word. No prophecy was the production of an imagination. The word we're going to get to when we, when we look at 2 Timothy 3.16 is that the scriptures are derived from inspiration. That's the technical word that we have. For this But the kind of inspiration here that Peter is describing is men being carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking God's word, that in a way that it's both Jeremiah's word, the, hence Jeremiah started off in verse one, the words of Jeremiah, and yet it was also God's word, and that they're somehow carried along by the Holy Spirit. The inspiration here is not that of an artist... filling our minds with imaginative dramas... in which we produce the truths of God's Word... in an artistic representation of it. If we just had 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 21... we might not see that very clearly. And that's why we have the whole scope of Scripture to look at. So we're going to turn to one last place in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. In which we're told, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice here that not only does he point out the ...authority, really the author of Scripture being God himself. But he also points out that the reason why it's profitable... ...the reason why it's good for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness... ...verse 17, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work... ...is rooted in who the author of the Scriptures is. And the word there is all Scripture is breathed out by God... See, we have this word inspiration, but really, I would say the Greek word more refers to expiration. But that doesn't really make good English, does it? Because when I say someone has expired, they're dead. <laughs> but think about that for a moment. We talk about people expiring because they breathe their last breath out of them. When we talk about the Bible being God's word, the reason why it's probably more precise and technical to refer to expiration is because the breathing out, the X being out of like an exit. And the breathing out, when I talk, I'm breathing out words. It's in that sense in which we see the scriptures as God's breathed out word word. And I have there another term, verbal plenary inspiration. When God, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore it's useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof. Notice he's referring to the written Scriptures. The word there, all Scripture, being graphe, re- referring to the writings of the Old Testament. And the reason why we have that word qualifier verbal is because it refers to the very words of Scriptures not just the inspiration of ideas. In plenary referring to the fullness thereof. That when we talk about God's Word being God's Word we're referring to the actual words of Scripture as they appear in our Bibles ...and no word is left out. And we have to be very clear about this... ...because there have been people in history... ...that try to minimize that teaching... ...and try to say that the Bible just contains God's word. And this is the way that people, Christians... ...have received all of the Bible throughout church history. Whether it was from Moses or from Paul... The the church in Thessalonica... this is 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13... speaking about the message they received from Paul... it says, when you received the word of God... that you heard from us... you welcomed it... not as a human message... but as it truly is... the word of God... which also works effectively in you who believe. The word of God here... ...is believed and trusted in... ...and has authority to command... ...submission to... ...because it is God's word. The reason why it's fundamental to our faith... ...is because the Bible is God's word... ...bearing God's authority... ...and lastly, it bears God's perfections. It bears God's perfections. Jesus, when he quotes... Correct the scriptures, correcting the Pharisees. In John chapter 10, verse 35, he affirms the fact that the scriptures cannot be broken. Speaking of the scriptures, Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Referring to the fact that they do not change. This was Jesus' own view of the scriptures, affirmed in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, "...do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." And there, Iota, he's referring to the smallest little dot. The smallest little letter. That not one of it will be changed. So what kind of inspiration... How does he view God's word? He views it as God's breathed out word... and it applies to not just the truths that are taught in it... but refers down to the most minute details... That's why we have two different words. That when we talk about inspiration, the Bible being God's word, it's infallible. That means that it is not possible to fail. Why? Well, once again, this goes down to God himself. God cannot teach, really, truth that contradicts itself. And because the Bible is God's word, if it is to be truly God's word... It cannot just be perfect in the large, big ideas that it teaches, or the truths that it teaches, but it has to be true down to the smallest details, even to the words themselves. Why is this so fundamental? The Bible that we affirm that it's God's word, bearing God's authority and God's perfections. Why is it important for us as Christians to affirm this? Well, the first thing is that we don't elevate other authorities in its place. For there's only one book. There's only one source of information that has this claim of being first or 2 Timothy 3:16, of being God breathed out. but it also helps us in pretty practical ways if we realize that the Bible is God's Word. It helps us to understand why as Christians we should make Bible reading a priority, doesn't it? When we read our Bibles and think of it just as a human book written by human authors who were fallible, and that's true, we miss the significance of the book that we're holding in our hand if we don't realize that while it is written by Moses, written by various authors, the whole Bible has one author in it. And that author is God himself. And if you're not reading your Bible and it's not a priority in your life, please don't wait until New Year's to make that a priority in your life. If we understand that the Bible that we hold in our hands are truly God's word and that all of it is profitable for correcting teaching, for correcting our living, for training in righteousness? Won't we memorize God's Word, meditate on it, fix our minds on it, seek to hide it in our hearts so that we can share it with our neighbor? The reason why Psalm 19 talks about both the Bible and the universe as being shaped and governed and being marked by God's Word It's in part that we understand the power of that word. That the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. can be used to even make a sinner recognize his sin and turn to the living God. If we understand that the Bible is God's word, I think it will help us to not only just read our Bibles... To make that a priority, but I think we'll listen to it differently, won't it? Won't we? When we hear God's word read, I think we'll read it with high esteem. That we'll read it knowing that we can understand it because the same God who speaks in it indwells our hearts by the Holy Spirit if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That he has spoken in human language because he wants to be understood if we understand the Bible is the Word of God, we'll be convinced of the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you see the significance that John starts off his, Bible, uh, starts off his Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, word was with God, and the Word was God. Because the word bears his authority. The word bears his attributes, his perfections. There is no higher way that John could have called Jesus God than to call him the word of God. And if we listen to Second Timothy chapter 3... In that context where he talks about scripture being God's breathed that word, he talks about people, evil people, who are imposters, going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But he tells him to continue in what he's learned and what he's firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood that he was acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What is God's word, God's authorities, and God's perfections all about pointing us to? The word of God made flesh. It starts off with creation in Genesis 1, but it moves so quickly into the fall, doesn't it? By Genesis 3, we get to the fall, and we have the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And what's the focus of it? God's plan to redeem sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was the word of God in the fulfillment of everything that came before him. That's our hope. If we have God's word, ultimately and most importantly, we'll believe on it for the Savior who is laid out before us, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have God's word and you have eyes to see, you can read it. You can understand who he is. His call for you to turn from your sins and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That he might save you. And the same word promises that there is salvation which you can cling to in Christ alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that you, being the God of the universe who created all things... Did not remain distant, but instead stooped down, spoke in human language, and as our creator, made all these things known to us. Without your scripture, we would have been lost, dead in our sin and rebellion. We would have known your power and your greatness by the design of the universe, but we wouldn't have known your love. We wouldn't have known that you're a loving Father who sent your Son to save us. And Lord, I do pray that as we read your Word, and even as we hear the commands of your Word, that we would not any longer just see it as a matter of mere rule-keeping, but that we would read the Bible, read the writings of the Word of God, And that it would become to us a matter of listening to our Father's voice. That we'd be drawn to him as a sheep is to their shepherd. And that our souls would return to God in Christ. May anyone in this room who does not look to Jesus and him alone for salvation, may he turn to Jesus today. May you grant him the strength to do so. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.